2: Money starts right now, live from the NASDAQ market site, overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Karen Finerman, Brian Kelly, and Dan Nathan. Check out shares of Chipmaker Broadcom, sinking after reporting earnings moments ago. That conference call is kicking off right now. We will bring you the very latest. Plus, we've got James Wang of ARK Invest with us to break down the numbers, and he will tell us which stock he sees winning the battle of the chips. But we start off with the oil crew jumping as two oil tankers were attacked in the Gulf of Oman, the White House blaming Iran for the assault. Hadley Gamble is in the UAE with all the details on this developing story. Hadley.
0: Good evening, Melissa. So essentially what we've seen over the last several hours is an intensifying of the rhetoric on both sides of this issue. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo coming out and attacking Tehran, saying they are responsible for what happened to these two tankers off the coast of the UAE, off the coast of Iran, right in the middle of that uh, Gulf of Oman earlier today. Now this is a story, of course, that we have been tracking since around 6 a.m. local time. It's now after 1 a.m. here in the Persian Gulf. Let's listen in to what Mr. Pompeo had to say.
3: Taken as a whole, these unprovoked attacks present a clear threat to international peace and security, a blatant assault on the freedom of navigation, and an unacceptable campaign of escalating tension by Iran.
0: The Secretary of State there saying that this is part of an overall campaign of escalating tensions. You've got to remember that just a month ago, four other tankers were also... An attack, two of them Saudi tankers. And it was interesting to note how slow the administration and even the Saudis and the UAE as well were to technically blame Tehran on this. And the feeling certainly here in the Gulf states and back in Washington, according to my sources, was they didn't want to come out too strongly and really make the situation worse. But certainly that isn't the case today with those strong words from the U.S. Secretary of State. Just to give you a quick run through of what we saw over the last several hours, uh, the first indications that we had that something was really, really wrong in that very, very busy shipping lane, one of the busiest in the world, was around 6.10 a.m. when one of these tankers uh, released a distress call. This was picked up, of course, by the U.S. Navy, who are based in Bahrain with the Fifth Fleet. They responded to that distress call. There was another distress call after 7 a.m. as well. Both of these tankers, uh, their captains, essentially saying that they were attacked, potentially even by a torpedo. There were flames in the air. The crews had to be evacuated. That was something that the USS Bainbridge took part in. They got those crews to safety, but it's interesting as well, I think, to note The noise that we've heard out of the Gulf countries. We've heard uh, other than one condemnation by the Saudi oil minister for these attacks. uh, It's been pretty, pretty light in the criticism from uh, these countries like the UAE, like Saudi Arabia. And that's kind of unheard of, frankly, in the last several months in particular. They've been pretty strong in terms of them attacking Tehran, certainly with what we've seen coming out of Washington as well. And the president tweeting very shortly after the secretary of state's announcement uh, that while he very much appreciated the efforts of Shinzo Abe, the Japanese prime minister, to really mediate with the Ayatollah, he personally feels that it's too soon to even think about making a deal. He says the Iranians aren't ready and neither are we. Now, that is a very, very different tone. You'll remember from what we heard from the president even in just a few weeks ago when he was saying, hey, just pick up the phone and call me. So tensions here
2: in the Gulf running pretty high and we're going to
0: continue to bring you this developing story. guys.
2: Hadley, thank you. Hadley Gamble in the United Arab Emirates. It's been a wild ride for crude, uh, as OPEC just yesterday warned of weak oil demand, which sent the commodity crashing to five-month lows. Tim Seymour, put this into, I mean, you know, a jump of 2 3% off of five-month lows. Oh, oh, yeah. So like, a big, look, the, 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 the big response
1: in, in spot prices of Brent or crude, whatever you're following, that it was kind of disappointing when you consider that we're actually oversold to begin with, or at least look at the charts. And, and the charts will show you that you've actually got Brent looking at basically a downward sloping uh, Daily moving average on the 50, 100, and 200 for the first time in, in a long time. Remember, it takes some time, and all three now downward sloping, you might even have a, a death cross setting up. So um, that, that is what it is. In terms of the fundamentals, is, is oil, are oil prices a function of supply, or are they a function of demand? And I think it's ultimately a function of supply, uh, and I think this is a case where uh, that's a bigger issue. The demand that OPEC pointed out yesterday is a concern, and they also pointed out that five-year supplies uh, on OECD supplies are up at five-year highs. So, look, I, with a dollar that I think can also go higher, um, the, the, the near to medium term for me on oil prices looks challenging.
4: Yeah, I mean, it was uninspiring, right? If you were able to shut your ears off and not hear anything that happened today, you would look at the oil price and say, you know what, a 2% rise after 4% move yesterday? No big deal. It's just an oversold bounce, and it's probably going lower. So you look at it. Yes, it is a supply issue. But to Tim's point, it is very concerning. You know, oil, energy, that is the economy. Whether we want to switch to solar or not, we still depend on oil and energy to run our economy. And the lower that goes and the less demand for this that there is, that's that means that the global economy is getting weaker. So it's certainly a concern here. I don't think oil is done going down. We might get a little bit of reprieve for the next couple of days,
2: but I'm still a seller of oil. So slowing demand basically trumps anything that's going on right now in the Middle East, in your view? Uh, absolutely, yeah, 100%. Yeah,
3: yeah and, and I think it's really interesting. So we had these four instances in May where we had tankers that were attacked, and Hadley just said to us there was just, you know, a lot of people were very slow to point any blame. Today, the U.S. Uh, State Department is placing blame without any evidence, and that's kind of awkward, too. At this point to put, you know, we don't want to see uh, global macro tensions kind of ramp up here. So if you guys are telling me that you think oil's weakness up until today was a demand issue and then you think about just everything that's going on in rates, you know, and you say to yourself, man, the 10-year Treasury yields back below 2.10, and what is that indicative? Is it indicative of a further dovish Fed or is it indicative of just global growth and the way people feel about it? And you say to yourself, those are two bad things. And then the last thing you just said is, you think that Dixie could go higher. It sold off 2%. Right. from those recent highs. we had a to break out in the Dixie. That's not good for oil, and then we have rates going the opposite way.
5: I, I'm concerned that it's an economic issue, not, not I mean, maybe a little supply-demand, but I, I'm concerned about the economy. I'm actually sort of surprised that the market traded decently today. I understand the response in oil itself was muted, and so maybe this will be just a tiny blip. That wouldn't be surprising at all. However, it just seems to me the market is... A little sort of on eggshells, somewhat, and you know, I don't know that anything really happened on trade today to make it better. I'm concerned. I'm concerned about the economy, um, the volatility index. I still, uh, I, I would not close to selling puts at all. Anything, I'd be a buyer of more of them. I, I think it was just more pain to come. We'll start to see when companies report. I think FedEx. Maybe next week, 26th? I don't know. We'll
1: start to see. One of the things that that I I feel like I was saying in September, which didn't end up being entirely accurate, but I said I thought the Q1 2019 was going to look like... Q1, uh, 2016 light. So it wasn't going to be, but remember oil got down to, in January 16th of 2016, down to $28 a barrel on Brent, all commodities were caned. If, if you look at, at the commodities, and I just think this is happening a little bit later. And I think it's a function of, of where we are with the trade dynamic. And so, um, I think we are still fighting, uh, this global growth headwind, but look at, look at copper prices. Look at the CRB Rind. look at, look at the CRB index. in other words, other plays on commodities, watch Glencore, which to me is a levered commodity play. Um, and, and as we talked about with the dollar, despite the fact that I think the euro actually is, is cheap to the dollar on a PPP basis, and that's purchasing power parity, um, if you look at the politics in Europe and if you look at where actually Germany has been in terms of the recession and the bullets that the Central Bank of, of Europe does not have, I think the dollar is, is it's not going a lot lower in my view. I don't know that it has to go a lot higher, but in that environment... And in a safe haven bid, it's a difficult time for
4: commodities. It, well, it just is. And then just to add that to, this is one more piece of the uncertainty that we have out there, right? We don't know how how uh, this is going to impact companies. The trade war. How much are they cutting back? Can they plan for the future? Now we've got an uncertain geopolitical situation in the Middle East. We've got uncertainty about commodity prices. Now we've got uncertainty about cu- currency
2: prices. All of those things add up to a really tough time for so, stocks. So can I flip this question around then? I mean, what does it tell you that the stock market actually managed to finish the day higher when you're introducing this new risk, this geopolitical risk, into the fray and nothing happened today. Well, here's the thing. (laughs) S&P,
3: believe it or not, is up 15% of the year and it's within a couple percent of the all-time high. So you say to yourself, we sound pretty downright (laughs) awful about it. Equity markets have done pretty well here. I guess what I would take you back to is again, Q4 of 2018 when there was a lot of optimism about a G20 meeting and a meeting between President Trump and President Xi. And we thought we got an announcement about something, whether it was a kick can down the road or some sort of deal that our president was touting, we are much farther away from that. And when you think back, when we got back after the G20 in early December, the stock market dropped 10 percent in the next few weeks. OK, so here we are back at all time highs or very within that. And the best case scenario is that we get a push out at the G20 uh, later this month. Right, so no new. Tariff. So you tell me how the stock market is going to take a push out of a of really a deal that a lot of people want to have,
1: or, or how a stock market's going to take a Fed that that between now and the end of July. July, and it's not that far away, we're going to have digested two Fed meetings, and we're really going to have a sense of whether this Fed is ready to cut and be... As far as I'm concerned right now, it's a Fed that's going to be tactically cutting, because I, I understand the mandate. I understand we've had guests come on, talk about the leading economic indicators. I, I realize there's a lot of places that you could make an argument, we're heading down. There's no question. I
5: think but it's the question that to already in. I think a cut is priced in. Well, well it's priced I think in, it's but, it's, yeah. but
2: that's not necessarily what we're going to get, right? Right. Right. So yeah. there's a that's, risk there. A huge, yes, risk, yes, yes. a huge risk. Yes. huge risk. We're at 87% by July. Right, right we get that's nothing? The point. That's the yeah. point. If we get nothing, so, so or, the markets, or, yeah, but that's it. The right? equity
1: markets it's, want the Fed on their side. Um, they've arguably taken the Fed and assumed the Fed is on their side, and, and I'm not sure that's what we're getting And, over and next just to Dan's
4: point, you know, listen, the market is up, but that's exactly the time that you need to be the most cautious, right? So while we might sound somewhat bearish, I think we all kind of do sound somewhat gloomy, you just need to be cautious if you have those profits, particularly in this environment. And then look over the last year, we've traded in a range effectively. It's been a huge range, but we've traded in that range.
2: All right. Oil stocks may have served Higher today, but our next guest says this rally is giving off some bad energy. Let's move the charts Right, head- No, I can't take credit for that, yet. <laughs> head of technical analysis at Oppenheimer, Ari, what are the charts telling you?
6: All right, well, starting with crude oil, the trend is lower. It's an asset that should be sold on strength, is due for some oversold relief, but still, I think energy stock should still be sold. Let me show you why. First, let's start off with the commodity, and I think what one of the biggest drivers has been over the recent years has indeed been the U.S. dollar. There is an inverse correlation there. I think on one hand, we don't see the risk of a collapse in commodity prices like we saw in 2014-2015. In that 2014-2015 period, you had a surging U.S. dollar DXY. That coincided with the big collapse in commodity prices. Fast forward to to today, The dollar is rising, pressuring commodities, but it's been a much steadier ascent. I think it's going to create a more range-bound backdrop, much like the 1980s and 1990s and even the 50s and 60s. We're in a secular trading range for commodity prices. Speaking in terms of West Texas, we're bouncing off an important level at $50. That that yellow line there, that's the 61.8 retracement of oil's rally to date. Uh, On the upside, though, I think you're limited to $60. That's going to be the upside of the range. That's where the falling 200-day comes into play. That's where you want to sell it. Here's why you want to stay away from energy stocks. Looking at the oil service ETF, OIH, it doesn't get rewarded when oil rises at the same degree. It gets slammed when oil falls. Here's what I'm talking about. Here's crude oil, which is still nearly doubled from its... 2016 low at around $26. At the same time, oil service ETF has been one of the worst performers in the market. It's been uh, an underperformer, a stark underperformer since 2016. And what has happened is that when oil rallies, oil service names are a market performer. When oil drops, they're a big underperformer. Again, oil service, uh, excuse me, oil stock, oil price rising, oil service names, market performer, oil drops, you get slammed. Uh, And as it stands now, this OIH is at a fresh relative low in a really established downtrend versus the market. Listen, we're positive on stocks. We think uh, commodity oil prices could maybe be flying a temporary floor, but if my best case is that this downtrend is just tapering and it becomes a market performer, forget about it. I think there's much better opportunities elsewhere.
2: Okay, so OIH stinks, basically, no matter what crude does, is what you're telling me. Um, in terms of what I should believe, you're bullish on stocks. What, what should I believe in terms of the correlation, if there is a correlation or relationship between the price of oil and the stock market at large? I mean, one would think that rising oil prices is indicative of, of global growth, and so therefore good for stocks, but here we are, five-month lows.
6: If you look back through history, stocks like stability in these inner markets— uh, They don't like when when oil prices surge. They don't like it when oil prices drop. They like these range-bound commodity markets. If you think of the big secular bull markets uh, in the past, the 1950s and the 1960s and 1980s and 1990s, commodity prices did nothing through those periods. It was price stability. That's exactly what we have right here. I think it's good for the stock market, not good for stocks exposed to those commodity prices.
2: All right. Ari, thank you. Ari Wald of Oppenheimer. So that's good. I mean the fact that oil didn't move too much on these headlines, it is stable, right? It well for 2 days.
4: That's the concern, okay. right? For 2 days it's stable. The concern is there's something more here and we get into the, I mean the way oil in in my view the way oil impacts the stock market is when it gets real low. Let's call it, let's call it below $30 a barrel, then everybody worries about defaults in the oil patch. Mm-hmm. You know, between 30 and 50 you have a geopolitical risk but then there's the other side to it is what kind of a quote-unquote tax cut is that for the consumer paying less on gas so it's not a complete disaster to have low oil prices it is a
2: disaster to have them too low. How about oil stocks? What do we do here?
4: Well, you know,
1: he, he talked about the OIH or the oil services. And just just to be clear, to state the obvious, if you've owned Halliburton against the S&P over the last four and a half years, you're down, guess, 79% relative to the S&P. Um, they're trading through those lows I talked about at the first quarter of 2016. Um, Halliburton's balance sheet is not imperiled. The question is really, uh, how is the second and the third quarter going to play out for them in terms, of, in terms of essentially the drilling dynamics out there? And I, I don't think it's going to go a whole lot better than it has. Um, having said all that, um, at these levels, at, at roughly seven and a half times EBITDA, um, this thing is is a thirty dollars stock without trying too hard. So it's so bad it's good. Well, it, it's I mean that's I'm not going to steal Carter's uh, favorite line, but I, I will okay. say that look, I have been relatively constructive on oil services um, not only back four and a half years, but um, certainly in the last four months. And so I, I think that at these levels, um, I can own Halbert.
2: All right, as we had to break, check out. Uh, where we stand with Broadcom shares in the after-hours market. Uh, the chip maker is sinking after, as the guidance is uh, weaker than expected for the full year on sales. The conference call is underway right now. And James Wang of ARK Invest will be here to break down all the latest developments. Plus, Twitter tanking today is a social media company becoming the social outcast. One analyst thinks so. We'll bring you those details. we are live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Wall Street sounding off on the social media stocks today with RBC issuing a note saying despite all the backlash, Facebook is still the leader of the space as 87% of all social media users still admit having an account. This is analysts at Moffitt Nathanson put a sell rating, actually reiterated its sell rating on Twitter, pointing to the company's failure to combat its privacy and security issues as more tech regulation looms. Twitter fell more than 3% as a result. So it's been a great year for the social stocks overall with snap up more than 150% well, Facebook is up 35 percent, Twitter up around 25 percent. So should investors heed Wall Street's warnings, fly away from Twitter? Just stick with Facebook, Dan.
3: Well, it's interesting. Obviously, the Moffitt-Nathanson analyst is kind of one of a minority when it comes to Twitter. Twitter's had a good year, but like you said, it hasn't done as well as Facebook. Now, Facebook had a very bad year last year. Why is that? Because we've been talking about this for months. Tim used to write all those op-eds. All like the serious. spending Wasn't that I mean, they were going to yeah. have to do to, you know, to combat bad actors on their platform, secure their platforms, that sort of thing. Um, you know, Facebook has taken that hit. We've already talked about that. Their earnings are expected to decline year over year. And I guess what Moffat is saying is that once twitter finally fesses up here and does and bites the bullet and starts spending more to do the sorts of things that facebook started guiding to last year you're going to see revisions lower in their earnings estimates and therefore it becomes a very expensive stock
1: well, I don't think people are buying Twitter on, a, on an earnings multiple right now, and, I, and whether that's right or wrong, I, I think we're actually um, more impressed either by DAU growth, which is now continues to be, even as they root out bad accounts, and I, I think one might argue that there's still a lot more work to do. There's been headlines the last couple of days. They're going after Iranian accounts, Venezuelan bogus accounts, so um, good for them. But I, you know, they're, they're giving you double-digit DAU growth, which is something that they hadn't done. Uh, and I think the earnings multiple at Twitter, Twitter even though we yeah, but, still Tim, want them to I, make money. I just money, to push back.
3: Is, is, you just said people are not buying it for that, they will certainly sell it if, if there, the earnings if they're, start they're, going they're, down they're, and the margins start, start getting contracted. It, yeah.
1: And I think that's really the most important point. But, but okay, so Fair point. But the other side of that is, hasn't the market been buying this based upon the fact that you started to see real momentum over the last three or four quarters, that they are showing no, profitability dude, the, But, but think growth? About I mean, that's the
3: only reason the stock's higher. What has driven the conversation in this entire sector over the last year and a half or so? And it's really going to only be amplified as we get into 2020. So to me, I actually think that if you're buying it because you're excited about their DAUs, you know, I, I think that's you're thinking about it all wrong because ultimately if there's going to be a hit to earnings, if they start spending.
5: Well, I, I've never gotten comfortable with the fundamentals. But let me ask you this. If there is some sort of universal regulation, right, where the and Twitter is, is you know, is under that umbrella, is that good for them, bad for them? do you think that gives them a, a, you think it's bad because it's expensive? It's bad
3: because they haven't taken their medicine yet. Yes. They haven't done the spending by their own accord and they will actually, investors will start thinking about what is it going to cost them. They'll start extrapolating what it did for Facebook, which is much more profitable. Right. Obviously, a it has a bigger much bigger right. bank. As to. a lot of money. But how do you explain that, that, that Facebook trades at,
1: at a multiple that's, you know, half or even worse than that of Twitter? And, and it gets back to that it's dynamic. It's a better buy. I think. What, sorry? <laughs> I think it's a better buy. Well, it, it, it it, it may be, but uh, you know you can make an argument that the market's saying exactly the opposite. They're willing to pay a whole lot more for a company like Twitter, um, which is much less proven. Obviously, it's nowhere near the business that Facebook does. And it gets back to some element of Facebook, which is that they can't really tell you what it's going to cost for them to get their security issues. Uh, and again, my, my big point back in those op-eds, Dan, was that, that, that <laughs> what is Facebook's product? It's data. It's your data. Um, what's coming off the assembly line? What's the cost of goods sold
4: on that piece of a, that product? They still can't tell you what that is. And, and that's that's something to be concerned about. I just think there's a, an awful lot of uncertainty with Facebook at this point in time. We're just going to we're going to see a lot more coming out before you can actually kind of get a handle on that. At least for me, I will say though, the wild card in all of this for the social media platforms is Facebook with their new payments play. They're calling it a cryptocurrency. It's not really that. It's more of a payments type of a platform, and I don't think that's priced into this stock nor is it priced in to other stocks. And that could be something that could save Twitter as well.
2: All right. Coming up next, well, I'm Melissa Lee, and you're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. Here's what else is coming up on Fast.
6: This magic moment.
4: Disney is on a magical rally, and one analyst says this is just the beginning of an even bigger breakout. We've got those details. Plus, there's one burger stock that's soaring, and no, it's not beyond meat. Tell me, tell me. We'll tell you the name, and what has the chairwoman pressing the buy button. As much more fast money right after this.
5: Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Stress less and save time at Canva.com.
8: Designed for work. Canva. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At p it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow. Today. Pursue your tomorrow with P Jim, a leading global asset manager.
2: Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Broadcom. Let's get to Josh Lipton in San Francisco for the details. Hey Josh.
9: So you know, Melissa. I just caught up with Susquehanna's Chris Rowland. Covers the name. Uh, listen, you know, he notes that gross margins actually did go up in the quarter. Sign they're mixing out lower price products. Notes stronger businesses like networking uh, perform better. But bottom line, uh, Chris Rowland want to know more about these macro issues that the company's now flagging here. Why they just lowered uh, full year guidance by about two billion dollars? Hock Hocktan addressed those issues right off the top of the call. Take a listen. With
6: respect to semiconductors. It is clear that the U.S.-China trade conflict, including including the Huawei export ban, is creating economic and political uncertainty and reducing visibility for global OEM customers. As a result, demand volatility has increased, and our customers are actively reducing inventory
9: levels to manage risks. Now, one of the first questions in the call, Melissa, was uh, analysts asking Tan, could you help quantify Huawei's impact a bit more? Uh, and Tan saying Huawei did represent about $900 million of revenue last year. Uh, but the guy down he's given, and he made this very clear, was not just because of Huawei. It was not one customer, uh, not one company, but broader, really, macro uncertainty. That's what they're looking at. Uh, he did try to give some positive colors, said, listen, fundamentals of the business are intact. Said they're positioned very well for 5G, uh, but you can clearly see the reaction there right now from investors. Guys, back to you.
2: All right, Josh, thank you. Josh Lipton in San Francisco, down 8.5% right now, Dan.
3: Yeah, I, I think this really highlights the fact that we're not seeing the tariff effect on uh, finished goods right now. We're seeing it in the supply chain. We're seeing the disruption. When you think about who Broadcom's biggest customers, we know that Apple is a 20% yep. customer. We know that Huawei is a big one. And this is probably one of the first reverberations that we're going to start to see. And get ready for these sorts of announcements in July when companies are giving forward guidance um, you know, on their two, Q2 calls. And, and if you're not expecting a positive announcement to the China deal, this is going to become more, pro- uh, More, uh, we're going to see it more often, and you may even see some uh, pre-announcements in the
2: next few weeks. And by the yeah. way, we're seeing weakness in the semiconductor shares across the board pretty much in the after hour yeah. session. So this is how it starts, right? You have one company guide lower. Then you have another guy lower. Then you have another guy lower, and then you then people start worrying about Apple. That puts right. pressure on on Apple, and et cetera, et cetera. It's We've seen just
4: add one or... more one more thing to the pile of concerns here, and then just add to it. You know, we're seeing the semiconductors reduce inventory in response to the trade war. What we're seeing in other companies is they're actually trying to buy a whole bunch of stuff before more tariffs go on. So you might have the sugar high effect in one part of the economy, but I'd watch the semiconductors because they are the leading indicator of the global economy.
2: Well, is Broadcom and other semi-stocks uh, set to roll out 5G? Could the chips be set to rip higher? James Wang, an analyst at ARK Invest, covering all things semiconductors, artificial intelligence, next-gen internet, and more. He joins us here with more. James, great to have you with us. Thanks for coming back. Um, I first want to ask you about Broadcom and what you thought of the results. And, and it was clear that it was not just Huawei. What else do you think it is? And should investors be worried about Apple, which is a major customer?
8: Yeah. um, If you read the comments, it seems like mostly China-focused, and the comments are basically cautionary around macro. Um, we've never been big on Huawei, to, to us, Huawei, uh, sorry, on, on uh, Broadcom. It's always been an operator's company. Um, this is all about rolling up companies and squeezing out efficiencies. We're more interested in our funds to invest in companies that are growing and actually creating opportunities. Companies like AMD and Xilinx, who are much more in control of their own fate. You don't see companies like AMD, for example, printing down uh, because they're still relatively small. In our tough macro environment, when you go for smaller players, they can, they can grow despite a macro headwind.
2: So macro still hits... Everybody, right? I mean, the concerns about China hits, hits a lot of chip companies no it matter hits. what. And so what are some of the extrapolations that you might make?
8: Um, I, I don't think it hits everybody to the same degree. I think sure. the more mature you are as a company, the harder it hits you because you're more correlated to GDP growth, more to trade. Um, if you look at some of the younger social media companies during 08, 09, they just grew right through it. Apple, you couldn't even tell they were they were having issues. So we're looking for companies that's building products um, that are more macro agnostic, um, that don't have a, you know, 3 5% revenue share or hit from, from a Huawei situation.
2: So from your standpoint right now, what are the major drivers or what is the major driver in semiconductor growth right now?
8: Um, topical is 5G. Um, I think it is important, but we don't view it quite as a disruptive innovation. I think the disruptive phase was probably 3, three or 4G. It's more, more like a sustaining innovation in that classic parlance. Um, we think AI is actually going to be a very sustainable trajectory for the next uh, uh, three to five years. And even beyond that, I just gave a presentation earlier this week in COGX in London. Um, I'm tracking over 60 companies building AI chips. I think that's going to be a very productive field.
2: How should we think about uh, the U.S. is obviously the major player in AI, but China is is pretty big as well. So how should we think about China's contribution to this sort of trajectory of growth when China's trying to really focus its efforts on its own semiconductor industry, the possibility that China might be building its own AI chips?
8: they're certainly doing that. Yeah. So I, I looked at all the venture capital invested in the field of artificial intelligence chips. 40% went into Chinese companies. Wow, 40%. 35% went to U.S. companies. So for the first time, despite the U.S. having the name Silicon Valley, more money is being pumped into silicon for the most important chip architecture, you could argue, um, than it is for the U.S. And that's uh, mostly to a company called Horizon Robotics. Um, so definitely China I think this trade war, they've already felt it, right? They wanted silicon and semiconductor independence from the US for a long time now. Um, AI is actually a great reset point because the classic players who typically control this industry, Intel, with the x86 instruction set, they're not in the driving seat anymore. AI is built on top of frameworks, which are instruction and chip agnostic. So AI China actually has a chance to, to be in the driver for, for this industry. So
2: how do you factor that into the companies that are here in the United U.S. semiconductor companies, that investors are saying, that's the way you have to play AI if you're not thinking about the possible rise in China in a matter of years, potentially, with their own AI
8: chips? Um, I, I think it's a, little, uh, it's a little hard to tell. We're, we're certainly considering the possibility you end up with two scenarios. Um, the AI companies out of China serving the domestic market uh, and the the U.S. and some of the European companies serving the rest of the world. It remains to be seen if if globally other customers will be willing to take Chinese AI chips. They still have to prove themselves. They're very early in the software process. I don't think they're quite there yet. You
2: can be in a Huawei ZTE kind of position, right, with that industry. Okay, James, always great to have you. Hope you'll come back. James Wang of ARK Invest, who covers semis there. Tim, what do you think? Who
1: makes complicated stuff sound really interesting. So that, that's good for James. And, and, you know, back to Broadcom. Look, this is a company that's going to have $10 billion in free cash flow in 2019. It's a company also that we talked about, Silicon. I mean, the 200, 400G uh, Silicon ramp is still a big, big deal for them. And Huawei's only 3 to 4% of their revenues. I think Apple may be a bigger deal than Huawei in the short run. But I, I like Broadcom here.
5: I'm more concerned about what they're talking about, Dan's talking about, for the economy at large, right? Mm -hmm. This concern that they have for the second half of the year and trade war. And I think, unlike last time, unlike in the fourth quarter of last year, where things turned around pretty quickly, I don't think the talk of a deal in the works will be enough to restore confidence, enough to restore spending. I think it will have to be a done, signed deal before companies get comfortable again you
2: know, being aggressive, it does feel like market participants get inured, right? So it's mm-hmm. a little development. And any you know, tweet like are will have less effect. Eh, you know,
4: the yes. have heard that before. So James brought up AMD, which has actually had a fantastic year. Looks like there might be, just from a trading perspective, it's at a double top potentially, right? So the way you trade that, at least for me, if you like AMD and you want to go with what James is saying, smaller company, you wait for a pullback to thirty, you use maybe twenty-nine as your stop and look for it to break through the double top.
3: Yeah, I'll just mention this. So, so obviously Broadcom is getting hit hard in the aftermarket right now, down seven percent I think you want to talk about Xilinx, which was a huge market leader within this group, is down 30% from its recent high since they guided down. And then we have, you know, obviously a lot of bad performance. NVIDIA, past leaders in this space, have broken. They're still up on the year, a lot of them, but they're broken. And so if we get more headlines like this, I'm expecting other legs lower in the space.
2: All right, coming up, the delivery war is heating up as Target launches same day, shipping across the country. Who will win the big box battle? Plus, Karen here is hot. The one burger stock that's on fire this week, and it's not Beyond Meat, the name when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. The delivery wars rage on as Target gives its same-day shipping option a flat rate to keep up with other big-box retailers like Walmart and Amazon, who have both announced next-day delivery recently. Target and uh, Walmart both outperforming Amazon this quarter, which has been getting hit lately by big tech regulation concerns. So while these delivery wars keep heating up, we're going to play a little... Would you rather? Oh. Rather. Would you rather? Rather. Yeah. Rather. Yeah. rather. Yeah. In the animation. Would you rather? Uh, rather. That would be too much oh, for a guy, this? by the way. Wow, that I extra know. rather. It sounds easy yeah. to understand. What <laughs> is it? Target, Walmart, or Amazon, Tim?
1: Well, I tell you what, I, I like Target over Walmart. And then, if I had to do the other, rather, I'll actually take Amazon. So I think in the big picture, I don't like big box. Period. I, I do like Amazon. I've never liked Amazon's multiple. Somewhere I got comfortable with that. Um, I do think that Amazon is in a place where uh, they are they are competing and winning in the consumables uh, market, which is effectively food uh, and staples. That's a trillion dollar market, and I think they're putting a lot of pressure on people like Walmart to have to cut their prices even more. So uh, they own delivery. Why? Why would you go against? Someone who pretty much created the dynamic that these guys are trying to emulate. Um, But I do think Target over Walmart, Amazon over them both.
2: Karen?
5: Uh, It's tricky, actually, because Target has run so much in the the last very short while. So I I like Target, but I I think, actually, maybe Amazon at this level. And the reason I I know (laughs) just because Target's run so much. The valuation gap between the two has... Not Tighten. collapsed, but it's narrowed. Uh-huh. And so uh, Amazon scale makes me sort of lean a little bit toward Amazon. My portfolio isn't that way, which should make me change it. But, and then the second part of the rather, I would rather Walmart than Amazon. That valuation dynamic or, or, or differential is exceedingly high. And so I, I you know, I, I obviously Amazon is the one to beat here, but there's a lot of room where it could trade. Should in, we interim, be
2: worried so. about a Walmart with Target going after the the, the shipping option? Uh, yeah, I think so.
4: I, I think of all of them, Walmart's, I mean, Walmart's done very well, but of all of them, Walmart's probably the most vulnerable at this point in time, primarily because the price action of it, it's moved up quite a bit. It's done a lot of the work that Target is still continuing to do. And then if you think about, Amazon, who operates well in an environment where margins are compressing? That's Amazon's business. So I'd make it simple. I'd just rather Amazon over them all. I don't think anybody's playing the game right, by the no. way. Keep going, I don't think yeah. I'm going to make right. it even more. Amongst I, just the one choice. choice. I think it's,
1: I think it's, it's basically a, a tiered option that yeah. you have to so You're saying you know, Amazon brackets, Walmart. I'm just like saying that.
4: Amazon, you can sell the other ones. Sorry. Uh-oh. A two-by-one
3: would-you-rather down Anyway. <laughs> 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 right, so Walmart at 110 and Target at 90, they're epic, epic double tops. They're back to their prior 2018 highs. I think, like to your point, they've run a lot to those points. I would be shocked if they can meaningfully get above them. On the flip one? side of that. Neither. And on the flip side of that, I'm Amazon, if we get a breakout in the market, I'm not saying we are, that thing's going to make new highs. See, no one played the game right.
2: (laughs) No, I think you all played it right. You all get gold stars. the judge. Here we go.
1: (laughs) Everyone doesn't need a trophy here, Mel. I do.
2: (laughs) I'm the the number one person against everybody gets a trophy. Coming up, (laughs) we are awaiting Chewy's IPO pricing. The pet food giant expected to go public at the top of its range, but will its bark? (laughs) More than its bite, we will explain. Plus, Disney soaring as Morgan Stanley says the bull case for the stock could send shares 50% higher. Boom. But one trader says all the magic's already priced in. We got the details. We we'll come right back. Welcome back to Fast Money. The IPO market keeps barking as we await the (laughs) IPO pricing for pet supplies company Chewy. Leslie Pickers at the New York Stock Exchange with more on this. I'm sure you've heard every single pun, metaphor, everything under the sun.
7: I have, (laughs) but that's a new one, Melissa. I'm impressed, especially after, you know, the span of the day. But uh, the pricing call has been ongoing for over an hour now. We're still awaiting a final decision for Chewy's IPO. Typically though, when a price range is hiked, as Chewy's was yesterday, that means the company will opt to Price at the higher end of the new range, or at least above that. The company boosted its IPO price range by 12% yesterday. At the high end of the range, Chewy would raise $117 million and PetSmart would raise another $756 million. PetSmart bought Chewy two years ago for $3.5 billion and now is turning around and IPOing it for more than twice that valuation. PetSmart will still maintain control over Chewy with 70% stock ownership after the offering, and thanks to a dual-class share structure, it will continue to maintain voting control even if Chewy sells more stock the public. The pet industry has been growing rapidly and Chewy has benefited from that trend with a top-line growth rate of 59 percent last year. But the company remains unprofitable and faces steep competition, namely in the face of Amazon, which has recently made a push into the pet space. The stock will be listed on the NYSE right here under the symbol CHWY and will begin trading tomorrow. We'll see where it stacks up. Among the high-flying IPOs of the year, Fiverr is the latest, making its debut today up a whopping 90%. CrowdStrike was up another 16% today on top of yesterday's 71% gains. Including those two, we have seen 13 IPOs jump more than 50% on their first days of trading this year. Melissa.
2: All right, Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker at the NYSE. And we always think about Uber and Lyft and and what sort of difficulties they've had coming out of the gate, but really, overall, the IPO picture has been pretty good so far.
0: Yeah, a
3: lot of these smaller ones with small floats have done really well. It's a supply-demand yep. sort of thing. Um, I would tell you this, that Uber and Lyft also feel like they're kind of basing a little bit. They've kind of, the fever's broken to the downside. Uh, Uber's just 50 cents from its price, uh, 45 bucks, and Lyft feels like it's been basing in the mid to low 60s for a while. So if you have a better market, you have a new high in the S&P, you may see these things start to break out a little bit.
1: So, you know, CrowdStrike IPO, yesterday, and if you think about, for me, of all the IPOs that come out outside of Uber and Lyft, which are obviously transportation services. This is cybersecurity, the cybersecurity platform. They have 44 of the the Fortune 100 companies as clients. Um, What do we think is going on over the next 10 years or 15 years for companies? This is vital to their success. Of all the companies that have a reason for being and those that actually should trade at a multiple, that also implies a moat around their business. And right now, I am less concerned about they being profitable. Even their addressable market to me is massive. So I think Cisco is probably your best cybersecurity play if you, to, you know, if you want to know the truth. Not McAfee, et cetera. Um, but I think these guys, and let's see where the multiple and where it settles in. It's had a huge run out of the gates, but this is very interesting to me.
2: Is so no one going to talk about Beyond Meat? No one's going to talk about Beyond Meat. <laughs> I'll talk there. about
4: Beyond Meat. I love Beyond Meat. I, I'm just, as, I, I as mean, stop. That's the, the burger, the product, and the food. Although I like Impossible Burger better Weren't than the Beyond, Beyond Burger. Weren't you selling this yesterday? But I, I was. But no, I wasn't selling it. Okay. No, no, no. Here's what I like about Beyond Meat no matter where you go no matter what restaurant you go to they're out of it they can't get enough of this stuff so there's a huge demand for it whether it's healthy or not i don't know who would but you go to you a go restaurant there, for a
1: fake hamburger huh who would go to a restaurant for a fake a fake hamburger go to yeah. for this guy <laughs> I mean, yeah. this guy right why here why they go for an but old no meat one
3: burger? does it they okay, do. that's not true, no that's the man. point People they, order they do they all Dan sold might not out. do it
5: you're a steak guy anyway. Yeah. No plant-based. You're, anything n- you're for a you. never all
3: meat person. Listen, <laughs> I just think that, that, that it's been a great announcement, one a day of a new restaurant chain picking up these sorts of yeah. things. In about six months, we're gonna see all these like crap consumer studies basically saying that no one's eating them. But that's six just, months from now. I, I that's fine. Well, we had I'm, Tyson well, I mean, coming out you know. today
2: with their raisin rooted brand, which is a hybrid well, uh right. Brand. Like
1: every meat company is gonna have an alternative to meat. And and also, you know, frankly, people like restaurant Cisco's and those big restaurant food suppliers are are the ones that are really going to clean up on this, especially as these guys create demand for that product.
2: Yep. Well, speaking of the meatless mania, Red Robin, which serves Impossible Burgers, by the way, we a takeover bid today from Vintage Capital. The private equity firm said it would be willing to buy the company for $40 a share, sending shares soaring 30%. Well, Karen, why don't you give us your fine print on this? Yes, I found this fascinating, actually, and I bought some Red Robin today on this news.
5: So we have The company that doesn't have a CEO now, they had reported a terrible quarter and they announced the CEO was fired and they're searching for a new CEO. In the meantime, though, they've had these terrible earnings. Vintage comes along, they buy an 11% stake at, you you can tell from their filing, they paid a little over $30 a share. So that's interesting to me. You can buy it here at 33 and that's not a lot higher than Vintage paid for it. However, we did see one quarter of very crappy earnings. But here's the thing that makes it so interesting. Vintage has said, we can call a special meeting and throw out your entire board. And that's a really powerful tool to have, especially when you talk about being willing to buy the company for $40 a share. However, that is subject to due diligence. So the board came back tonight and said, or today, and said, we'll consider any bona fide bid. Well, of course, they have to consider it. That's their job. That's They're on the board. They have to do that. But it was really kind of a dig at the company that, we don't think your bid is really bonafide fide. you haven't there's no financing secured tweet that went along with it, so there's that that would mean that, that would mean of course, financing was <laughs> entirely secured already. So I spoke to uh, Brian Kahn from Vintage today, and he feels that. On a store basis, not with the overhead, but on a store basis, this is really an attractive franchise that could actually be worth a lot more in a different structure, maybe a different owner, but also focusing on different things like franchising more, for example, doing, uh, you know, they have a lot of real estate, getting some value out of the real estate. And so they think it's attractive. We'll see how the board responds to them beside just just this letter of we'll consider any bona fide offer. So now the stock has traded, I think, more than 30% today of the float. Everybody who bought stock today is an ARB who wants Vintage to be successful in this endeavor here. So this is a very interesting situation. The board's response is not enough. A lot of pressure is on them. I wouldn't be surprised if they get calls from shareholders and from potentially other bidders. And they're going to have to come back soon and say, we're considering a process. Or they can be difficult and sue vintage that right. could happen as well but vintage they're not they're not patient guys they will i think we will see something in short order here Keep i'm long posted. i think it's interesting
2: Yep, coming up disney beating rival netflix at its own game as wall street doubles down on the stock ahead of its streaming debut but has disney come too far too fast or fast money still ahead Welcome back to Fast Money Checkout. Shares of Disney getting a big boost after Morgan Stanley raised its price target to 160 from 135, saying it expects big profits from upcoming streaming platform Disney Plus and predicting the service will have more than 130 million subscribers by 2024. Options traders want in on the profits too. Dan's over at the plaza to break it down. Dan, what'd you see?
3: Yeah, so uh, call volume went berserk today. It was five times average daily volume, five times that of puts. Um, and, you know, on a day the stock was kind of breaking back out towards those prior highs. Um, you know, the next real big event for Disney is going to be their earnings. It's going to come in the first week of August. The options market is implying about a 9% move in either direction between now and the first week um, of August. But today, the action was really interesting. It was a lot of short dated calls. In the weeklies, but the most active was in the June 21st, next Friday expiration 140 calls. About 38,000 of those traded an average price of about 163. Um, a lot of those looked bought to open. So what are they tr- trying to do here? Playing this momentum here, playing for a breakout. We're seeing some stocks break out. When they do, they're doing so, um, you know, on pretty good volume here. So a continuation of volume. Let's just go to the charts really quickly here. I have a one-year um, chart. We see this was the gap where they initially gave that guidance about this stream network. So investors really want to know incrementally more guidance. That was that prior high. We're getting back up towards Um, there. um, But on a five-year basis, I think it's pretty amazing. This was when they basically started to tell us that earnings were going to get hit because of everything that they hadn't been doing in streaming and and over the top, that sort of thing. And we had this multi-year consolidation. That was the uh, event that broke it out last month where they basically said things are going better than expected. So I would expect this stock to have a ton of support down at this breakout level, which is about 120.
2: Very bullish, uh, Tim. Quickly. Well,
1: if you think about Netflix and 140 million subs, and they say they're going to be five years, 130, and everything else, studios, you name it, consumer products. I'm long Disney, and I stay long.
2: All right. For more options, action, full shows tomorrow, 5:30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, final trades. Final trades, Tim.
1: Yeah, how about that Disney? I mean, if you think about the valuation of Netflix and the disparity of, it you know, we could make an argument that Disney's not only not expensive, but it's cheap here.
5: Carewoman. Yes, I just want to add one more thing on Red Robin. It traded even more stock today, so it traded about 40% of the float. And wow. Every one of those holders would be
2: likely voting for vintage. So that's my final trade, Red Robin. It's up 4% after hours, by the way. BK. Yeah,
4: you generally don't want to be on the other side of Karen's trade. So this is a little dicey one. BK is a seller at XLF. It's more of a market call than the financial. I thought you were going to short Red Robin. No, no,
3: no.
2: (laughs) That's crazy. Danny?
3: Yeah, I think the most impactful thing that happened today was that guidance after the close by Broadcom and the reasons for it. I think you continue to sell semiconductor stocks on rallies, especially into the Q2 uh, earnings in July.
2: All right. That does it for us. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Money. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.